The reason I do Speaking Duck is to talk to the most passionate people in the food and dining industry in the city. And you will never find somebody more devoted to their art than you will with Joel McCharles. Joel is famous for his blog and soon-to-be book called Well Preserved. He is the king of canning, the prince of preservation, the jack-of-all-trades of book writing. I don't know, I lost it on that third one. No, I got nothing. Yeah, it's, it's I, was like, I was thinking like a sultan of salt. Oh, that's not bad. I have a really high standard of quality for my puns, though. <laughs> like, I clearly don't. I like that. <laughs> the sultan of salt-cured meats. Anyway, you ever want to know how to pickle something? You ever want to learn how to make your own hooch? Go to wellpreserved.ca. Joel is very eloquent. He is such a well-spoken but enlightened person like he you just can't help but learn from this guy you sit this guy down for an hour and he's a wealth of knowledge he'll teach you how to take advantage of your pantry and you know we even joke about preppers and um, getting ready for you know an apocalypse but really it's the ability to preserve something that you can get an abundant amount of in the spring to have it in the winter preserve and basically embrace seasons all the time when you least can basically remember them you know these toronto winters can get really intense and sometimes all it takes is a opening of a jar of peaches that you preserved from the spring or the summer and it really can just give you that little bit of sun that you've been missing and joel mccharles speaking duck doesn't get any cooler than this check it out been to any of John Sinopoli's restaurants? Yeah, we do a lot of pop-up events at High Low, which is uh, one of the bars that he runs. Uh, Ascari is probably my favorite restaurant. I think we might have to go there after this podcast. <laughs> that could work. I haven't been yet. Ascari's amazing. Yeah? What's yeah. your favorite part about this Italian rustic cu- cuisine that John puts on the table? Great thing about Ascari is just a neighborhood restaurant. It's like the way that restaurants, that when you dream about a restaurant when you're a child and you think, hey, I'm going to have this little corner neighborhood restaurant that people are going to come to on a Wednesday night. Ascari uh, is just that place. It's- Did you know when you were a child that you wanted to be involved in the food industry? I have been engorged in food my entire life. My oldest memories around food. Um, I was known as a kid that would eat everything and anything. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've adored food. Whether I was going to work in it or not, that's different. Did you find that your parents were the biggest influence on how you looked at food as a young child? Yeah, I think they had a lot to do with that. My dad was a firefighter and there's a cooking tradition in the fire department. Uh, it also meant that he was home a lot more than, than many other parents. So he got to cook a fair bit as did my mother who was a nurse and she, they both worked shift work. So a meal at home was, uh, was very common. The firefighter style of cooking to me seems very family oriented, big plates, big shared meals. 
it, it's impressive because a lot of firefighters come, I mean, they're from all over, but especially a lot of the older, old school firefighters are a little more ethnic than they are, say, just plain old white yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a, a still white bread, but my father's very Scottish Canadian in his background, yet he was canning tomatoes in the late 1980s because of meeting other Italian firefighters and, and meeting other food traditions that definitely came into our house across the spectrum. What was your first introduction to canning? Oh, it's beyond memory. Uh, strawberry jam would be my guess as a, as a young, young child. What's the most basic canning that you think you still do today that you might have learned in your childhood? I do a lot more basic types of canning and preserving than I did back then. Um, but specifically from childhood is probably jam. Um, but that's, you know, jam's a lot more work than a lot of other types of preserving. We're going to have to go through a quick basic preserving method. I know you, you sent me quite a few and uh, you have a vast knowledge of every single one. And I guess Every different product is going to have a different form of canning or a different idea of why you need to can it a certain way. So this is your kind of your lifeblood right now. You are writing a book, writing a blog that you've been writing for a few years now called Well Preserved. What's the website for that? Wellpreserved.ca. And I'm just getting into preserving, let's say. Sure. So I won't hit you with, with all the types as an avalanche, but know that canning is one of seven types I do. So that's something that is a big misconception is, oh, I'm going to make jam or pickles. That's one of the types of preserving we do. But other types of preserving include using your fridge, using your freezer, hanging um, hot peppers, just hanging them on a string. Uh, they'll dry in your window. So there's all sorts of different types of preserving. Um, do you like me to walk through specifically in canning? Let's start with canning. And then I personally love curing. And I, I just want to hear a little bit about your knowledge about curing. But let's start from... The idea of well-preserved, obviously, it's a great pun, um, preserves, or the idea of preserving your food. Let's start at the very basic, and then whatever tangent you want to go off on, don't hesitate. Sure. So, I mean, when it comes to canning, the most basic is there's two real tenants that some veterans will disagree with, but really it comes down to two things. One is using tested recipes. When it comes to canning, you can't be creative. Um, and the reason for that is down to food safety. So when you're canning jam or you're canning pickles, that's really reserved for what's called high acid food, which is why you put cucumbers in vinegar to make them safe. Uh, but you couldn't do beef stock as an example in a regular water bath canning because you could create botulism and uh, uh, you could do yourself a great service of harm, including death. Having said that, there's less than 17 cases per year of botulism across the United States uh, over the last 10 years uh, related to home canning. Um, so if you're following a tested recipe and you're working clean, um, you're going to very easily create jam and, and pickles and jellies and that type of thing. What's your laboratory look like? Because we got to talk, we're talking about a sterile environment here. Uh, sterile is a bit, it's funny, a, a lot of the, the, we'll, we'll use the word sterile, but it's truly not sterile. I don't work in a hospital. Um, there, there used to be this, this process where you boiled jars and you boiled lids. Um, and really up till this year, that was, that was current. Um, the jarring companies are starting to, to refute that a little bit right now. So they're not calling for boiling of lids or boiling of, of rings anymore. Um, and some of the times they did, sometimes it didn't, but that's minutia. Um, really, as soon as you take a jar into your home environment, even if it's been in boiling water, you expose it to the open air, it's no longer sterile. So it's really important you work very clean. And when you do the boiling water bath process, which is actually putting the jar and putting a lid on it and submerging it in boiling water, that's where you're creating the heat necessary to create sterility. How many cans 
at a time do you think it's safe to keep? Because you, this is a, a highly monitored process. I mean, food safety is of most importance because you could literally get very sick. You could, but uh, you know, it's one of my pet peeves is that we we treat cars and cigarettes and alcohol like they're some sort of you know they need a warning label and they're a little dangerous but you know as long as we use caution but holy smokes we could die by making jam do you think that's because maybe some of these major manufacturers of these products are kind of scaring the average person into realizing that they need to buy these from their supermarkets they're definitely not contributing to beating down the illogical fear that we have around it. Whether they're trying to contribute to it, that's a different step. Okay. Um, but definitely, I think that there is a, a lot of illegitimate fear. And, you know, when I mentioned there were seven different st- types of preserving, really only two of them, you, you have to worry about, about botulism. Uh, botulism really thrives well with the lack of oxygen. So canning and pressure canning are, are great examples of fear of botulism. But fermenting, um, for example, which uses a lot of oxygen, um, the chances of creating botulism are, are, are none. Where does preserving not become worth doing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, every technique has a trade-off. So every every time we make something, there's always a trade-off. And that trade-off is often where the personal decision that's not worth doing. So as an example, a lot of jam includes a lot of sugar. So if you're diabetic or if you want to be strictly local, you might say, ooh, I, I want to stay away from sugar and maybe jam's not my thing, right? Where you go for more of a preserved full fruit or that type of thing. Um, you may want to go for something healthful. So I say, hey, I want to do uh, fermented pickles but you have to store those in your fridge. So you can only do so many until your fridge becomes overfull and, and that becomes a different problem. So really it becomes a personal choice down to the type of food that you eat. And our audience is very diverse and has very different trade-offs to answer that question differently. What's the first pickling you would recommend a basic preserver to start with? The one that they want to eat. Right. It's just that simple. Absolutely. And there's really two styles of preserving to know about when it comes to pickling. One is what's called a vinegar pickle. Um, You can pickle a lot of things and a lot more than cucumbers. A lot of us, when we think about pickling, we think about you know, I'm going to make a dill pickle or I'm going to make a, a sweet pickle. Uh, pickled carrots, pickled garlic, pickled celery, uh, pickled beets would be another common pickle that we don't often think about when we think of pickle, but start to expand that. Uh, so really, um, what I would say is, do you want to make a vinegar pickle, which is basically vinegar, maybe some honey, uh, some water, again, with a tested recipe in a water bath, which will keep it for a long time. Or do you want to learn how to ferment? And you could make a naturally fermented pickle, much more like a deli sour pickle with salt, cucumbers or carrots. Um, Fermented carrots are awesome. And uh, just let them sit on the counter for a couple of days or to a couple of weeks and you'll have a pickle. And the longer you're letting it sit on the counter, the stronger the fermenting process to a point, at, at some point you end up, you know, we joke that fermenting is controlled rotting. Um, and at some point that control ceases. Um, so a, a pickle can be, the longer it waits, the more sour it gets. But if you wait too long, it can turn mushy. Is this a practice makes perfect kind of experience or is every atmosphere going to change your product? What's the different variables that you've come across and the obstacles that you've overcome when you've, you know, maybe let that pickle go for one week too many. Sure. And, and 
you know, again, not trying to be too melodramatic, but it can actually be a couple hours and it's not normally a couple hours, but it can be 12 to 18 hours can be go from a great pickle to a mushy pickle. Wow. Um, now that can normally be saved, put in the fridge, uh, and fridge will crisp things up. The real key isn't experience. The real key is tasting it as you go. And I see that a lot with people learning how to ferment. They, they set it up and they have it fermenting and they wait for a month and then they taste it and say, oh, it's gone mushy. Um, but if they'd been tasting it all along, um, it starts off incredibly salty, unedible, um, awful. And a couple days later, the salt pulls out the liquid out of a vegetable. And then it starts to taste a little more pickly and then it goes sour and then it goes really sour. Um, generally, not always, but generally when it starts to smell... In my house, that's when we put a lid on it, put it in the fridge. It stops smelling. It doesn't reek your house up. And that's generally the point that it's ready to go. What's the most used pickled item in your house right now that uh, you're always running out of, that you're constantly replenishing? So it's a, I'm going to give you an odd answer to that. We have something called a quick pickle, and we have a bunch of quick pickles on the go. So a quick pickle is like a vinegar pickle. It's a pickle that you make with vinegar, but you can make it the same night that you eat it. So we have a jar of shredded carrots. I use a mandolin that cut, Julianne cuts them. Uh, we fill a jar with them and we basically boil brine with um, uh, mirin vinegar and there's some sugar in or honey in it um, and some other spices. And we pour it on top of the carrots. And then when the carrots are done, we reboil the brine and we put fresh carrots in it and pour it back on top. How many times can you use that? I've got some mirin going on a year. Come on. Uh, yeah, and I have some quick pickled cherries in the fridge at home that are 18 months old that are literally that process. It was pitted cherries that are in the fridge with vinegar uh, and honey to make them sweet. And uh, they're awesome, man. So it's called a marin? Mirin vinegar. Mirin it's vinegar. A brown rice vinegar, but you could use cider vinegar. You could use whatever. You could use white wine vinegar if you want it. And it's got that reusable power. Yeah, the, the key is that you're not sealing it. Like you're not getting rid of the oxygen. So you're not worrying here about... Uh, really when it comes down to it from a food safety wise, you're not worried about botulism. I'm sure at some point there's going to be so much liquid that comes out that it becomes less acidic, but what will really happen is, is food waste. I pr there's probably somebody who listens to food safety right now and go, yeah, you can't reuse it. Um, my experience has been that uh, that hasn't been a problem, but I wouldn't be water bathing that. So we have quick pickle on the fast turnaround yeah, side like, of, pres of preservation. If you wanted to make a quick pickle right now, take two tablespoons of vinegar, two tables uh, a tablespoon of honey, um, throw it in a pot, bring it to a boil, and you know that'll boil very quick because you've only got three tablespoons of liquid. Slice a Spanish onion, throw a Spanish onion in it, just slightly soften it, and take it off the burner 15 seconds later. Put it in the fridge for an hour, you'll have cold pickled onions, awesome on tacos, and you're done. Unbelievable. you got to do that at least 17 more times this episode. <laughs> <laughs> So what's on the other side of the quick pickle? So we have, I need a long-term preservation that's, this is only going to take X amount of months for it to be what it needs to be. Is that happen? Is that where, where we are from the quick pickle to something on the longer side of things? Sure. So long is measured in two ways in my world. One is, is physical activity. So how much work something takes. And the other is how long it takes till it's ready. Um, I have dandelion wine that's been sitting for two and a half years that I don't think is ready yet. Uh, I like to wait two years on meat as an example, which is a honey wine. Um, but it's a really simple fix to that because it sounds like a long time. Um, and it, it takes investment of time early on. But what you do is you actually make mead one year and I make a double batch of my first year and you drink it in the first year, but you only drink half of it. And in the second year, you make a double batch and you only drink half of it, but you've already got last year's sitting and you've got the year before sitting. By the time the third year comes, you can either make a double batch or start making single batches, but then you're always drinking two-year-old mead and you're making mead now for, the, for, for going forward. Spell mead? M-E-A-D. I think people are more concerned about 
the investment of time. Oh, am I going to put this away for two years? And then two years later, I'm like, this was a waste of time. It doesn't taste good. I did something wrong two years ago, and I'm going to feel bad about myself from two years. It's just like it seems like a very existential almost, uh, you know. I think the biggest thing that would surprise people is the volume that I make. Um, when you think about somebody making beer or wine, you're often thinking about those giant carboys, you know, a five-gallon container. I make booze and mead sometimes in a liter or smaller. And so there's not a lot to waste there. There's not a lot that, that can go wrong in terms of that. If I do a larger batch, sure, I, I have five bottles of mead sitting right now for two years. Um, and I can make a lot more too. But I like to make a lot of different little batches and see where it goes. Generally, if booze sits for two years and it's not great, it's still very boozy, it just has to sit longer. Amazing. Um, I, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. I, I, I got to tell you something that really prefaces how I look at food um, happened in San Diego, California uh, about four and a half years ago. I went into a small bar called Hamilton's Tavern. It's one of the best beer bars in San Diego, which is one of the best beer cities um, in the States. And Hamilton's Tavern has got thousands of taps hanging from the ceiling. And the bartender came up and their tap list was 60 or 70 taps and their beer fridges had hundreds of bottles. And I said, I need a recommendation. And she said, do you want good or do you want interesting? And she had me in that moment and I said, what, what is interesting? And she said, well, there's a guy in our city that makes three kegs of beer a year. And I don't know if it's good, but you'll never have it again. And San Diego kind of has this pirate spirit where, you know, Stone Brewery, one of the great breweries in the States, a microbrewery, although it's much larger, will do a one-off keg of chamomile tea or chipotle in their beer. And there's a real quest for curiosity and interesting over good. And when you're really good, you get both those things. But I get really fascinating, uh, fascinated and inspired by the intersection of interesting and good. And if... Some of my, most of my food is, I think is good, but man, some of it's interesting and the best of it is good and interesting. And sometimes that means I'm going to fall a little short to get something really interesting the next time. We're going to have to talk about these restaurants that you've been to all over the world. We'll try to keep to some local as well that balance both good and interesting. I want to um, fast forward a bit and then go back from the beginning. I want to know your you're writing a book right now. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that book. I mean, I can only imagine that your house is filled with mini notebooks all over the place next to all these different products that you're working on. That's how I picture uh, how you would have to monitor all the different processes that you're doing. Joel sent me a picture about a week ago um, of his cupboard or his pantry that's sitting, uh, where is that, in your kitchen, I, I would assume? Yeah. It's about, I don't know, 10 by 5, 10 high, 5 across with more canned goods than an Italian restaurant trying to show off when you first walk in. And this is someone's home. So I can only imagine that this book is a culmination of all the notes that you've been taking and all the, the processes that you've been following through for the last, I don't know, 5, 10, 15, your whole life. Yeah, it's, it's what's really cool about a book, and, I, and I, we're getting to write the book that we dreamed about, and we hadn't planned to write a book and kind of fell into that way. Um, this book's going to have 200 recipes. It's a 300-page volume, and it's a real exploration uh, to me of preserving. What's really neat about it to me and what really gets me excited about it was it's such a different process from the blog where I write one recipe at a time. 
It, suddenly you're creating 200 recipes that have to complement each other. So you have to make sure you've got representation from each technique and that you suddenly didn't have 75 jams and totally underrepresenting something else. Um, so the, right now our house is overrun by preserves because can't eat any of the preserves we made this summer um, because they're all for the photography for the book and all for recipe testing and that type of thing. Will they eventually be eaten? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. We've, we're right now at probably, we're unusually high right now. We're probably 1,500 jars of preserves in our house right Anything now. you walk by that you're dying to eat that you know you can't? Got a couple hot sauces that I'm pretty pumped about that are, are long fermenting and some really interesting kind of experimental techniques with them that, that I'm pretty excited about. I tried one of our pickles that's a play on a bread and butter pickle, but takes in some Indian flavors that I've had a early, early taste of that I just want to open the rest of them. So we're talking a 200 recipe cookbook in 300 pages, but this is coming from a blog that, you know, when I checked out your blog, there was at one point you did 1500 blog posts daily, not daily the every day, but 1500 days worth of posts. Yeah, we were, I, I wrote 1500 consecutive days at the start, um, which was kind of a duration experiment. And we didn't plan to go 1500 consecutive days at the start, but that's kind of where it went. Um, we were allowed to use up to 5% of the recipes from the blog in the book. Uh, but I've made a decision other than three recipes, which I'm reinterpreting for the book. Uh, it's a hundred percent new content. So let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Your child. Your parents, one's a firefighter, your mom's a... She was a nurse. Nurse. So where are you as a child that this first starts getting introduced to you? Your father is a firefighter. He's working with some Italian firefighters who have introduced canned tomatoes, I'm assuming? Th that did, but that was much later. That was probably 14, 15, that type of age, the teenage years. I think when I think back to my earliest memories, uh, I grew up in Markham till I was about a year and a half. No memories of Markham. We moved to Eudora, which is a suburb of Uxbridge, northeast of Toronto. Uh, I spent five years there and really formative years um, and really connected to farms. We were surrounded by farmland. There was only four houses on our street. We had a giant garden. My, my parents would preserve a little bit from it, but certainly would cook from it. Um, we had two doors down was a farm and I would go there and watch chickens get killed. Um, and my best friend was a pig farmer and a cattle farmer. And so I spent a lot of time connected to food in a way that most kids don't either in a garden or with animals that, um, you know, you knew was going to be part of your dinner. So where in that process do you start cooking? Where do you start learning about nose to tail? Where do you start learning about the earth around you and how to use it in your everyday life and cooking? And where does that take you? And then we'll skip over. You can skip over the, the firefighting um, storyline and move over to where you're taken from from there. Sure. And I mean, you know, the, the big unspoken piece here, and I know I'll just touch on it now because we'll go back to it later, but my father was also a hunter. So, you know, I remember going to Bambi as, as, as a child in the movie theater and learning that the hunter was the bad guy. <laughs> and, and that was really tough to see, you know, Bambi's mother got killed by my father. And that was a really moment of conflict in, in really thinking about what I ate. And, and up to that point, hadn't really thought a lot about. Um, so I, I was connected to the thinking about eating about, in effect, nose to tail. You know, a lot of my friends north of the city, we have a cabin up near Huntsville, um, who are from those areas. Can't believe there's such a thing as local food um, because it's just what they eat. 
you know, it's like you go to China. It's not called Chinese food. It's just called food. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, local butchers up there, a lot of the areas, not all of them, but a lot of the areas are absolutely connected to the farms and not because it's a farm to table movement, but because it's a community of people that support each other. Words like farm to table movement only exist in a city. It's where a we're, wild phenomenon. Because we're taken, <laughs> we're so taken away from it, even though it's so close to us. I mean, I'm the... I'm easily one of those people to blame in a sense. I'll be working from home. I don't want to go and interact with the outside world. I'll order something so I don't have to leave my front door, even though it could be a five-minute walk. I mean, you say that to a farmer or somebody that's eating local their entire life, they'll laugh you at the door. Well, and that's just, I mean, that's part of the conflict of being in a city. I mean, we're not 100% local. We're not 100% ethical. We're not on a pedestal on that stuff. I, I work 12, 13 hours a day outside of the house. We come back and we're writing. Man, you know, you ever want to screw up your food supply start writing a cookbook uh it's amazing uh, on you know sometimes convenience is just such a such an irresistible temptation so hunting led to learning more about where your food's coming from learning more about local now how does that tie into today well, there's probably an intersection of three things, hunting being one of them, but hunting, uh, being in farm country and, and knowing people that worked within farm country, you know, it, it's people look at farmers as idyllic, you know, quaint country sides. And, and when you grow up in farm country, you see something that, that maybe isn't quite the postcard picture, you know, for example, my best friend's father raised pigs and he would bottle feed the pigs, but he also sent them to their death. And that was, so that, that whole connection of people nurturing animals that they would then cull or kill um, was a really in-your-face experience as long as I remember being alive. Um, combine that with my mother, who's from Nova Scotia, and spending much time on the, um, not much time, but much of my vacation time in the summer on the oceans of Nova Scotia and fishing and seeing the fish stock change and see communities change. Um, is probably when I became much more conscious of maybe not nose to tail. I kind of think I probably started that kind of as a given, but of the bigger picture of what was happening around food. And who introduced you to preserving your food? It would have been originally around my parents, but everybody in my family at one point or another did a lot of it. Um, my grandfather was famous for mustard pickles, um, but all of them somewhere in the mid-1980s, including my parents, um, really got too busy and dropped off it. And there was a period of time that, that we didn't live with them. And, and even when they got back into it in, in my teens, when they were doing tomato sauce, I, I love to eat it, but man, I avoided that day. That was a lot of work and I, I wanted nothing to do with it. But now that's your, that's, that's your everything. There's nothing better than going to my parents' house and making tomato sauce for a weekend. And Dana, my partner, my parents and I making 160 jars of tomato sauce for the winter. Um, it's a pretty amazing weekend. What does your mom think Look now? You know, looking back to you, almost thinking that was a chore. Now you're like the most excitable thing to you is doing this. I mean, it, it, my mother spent her entire, my entire childhood, you know, cooking five days a week. Dinner was on the table every day for everybody. But she loved having her family there, and that's why she did it. It wasn't necessarily a love for cooking, you know. And you're now saying that it was almost a chore. You know, you're you're not young enough to appreciate it. You must have caught the bug. Yeah, I, I think what really happened was I went up to learn how to make jam with my parents. I was 31 years old. I, I probably wanted to impress my girlfriend at the time, who's still my girlfriend. And, and we learned to make jam. And within four months, we were 
making more jam than they were. Uh, we had 200, 250 jars of jam hidden under the bed. Um, and I, I think I entertain my parents a lot. I think they, they certainly appreciate what I've done. They know that they've created a monster. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a neat relationship now where we learn off of each other. Um, but they never get tired of learning either. My dad is 71. He's in George Brown cooking school. Come on. Yeah, my dad my dad is is obsessive about cooking. In fact, my mother's just signed up and she's now now going to be taking courses at George Brown around cooking as well. So, Are those like a, adult classes? Yeah, it's the the night school that the they night, have. That's and, incredible. Yeah, and I mean he's he's really really competent in the kitchen, but continuing to push the the learning. And this is driving from Markham an hour an hour plus in the middle of rush hour to get to school and get his uniform on. And uh, I've taken a few courses with him, but I haven't been able to keep up with him. He's got the old school firefighter mentality, though. He's he can get up and go, and I'm sure he's excited about this. So he's he's ready and gung ho all the time for yeah, it. Yeah, he doesn't stop. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> I would. Wish man, I wish it when I get to that age that I'm still as focused and interested in stuff that that your parents are. So, what do they re- request from He'd you? He'd totally kick you for making him sound like it's so old. I know, I am so sorry. <laughs> there, did my true ageist self just come out there? I know he's not. To be honest, but it sounds like he's retired. Uh, he's retired, but I mean, he still hunts. And up to last year, he would walk. 15, 20, 25 kilometers a day in the woods, still walks twice a day around Markham. Like, um, to say that he's active is, it would be an understatement. I think you and I would have a tough time keeping up. Oh, no, I, I know that. It's not a, that's not a question at all. They don't build them like they used to. <laughs> yes. So they say. So what do they request from you all the time? What's like the, like, son, we want these pickles. We want this uh, tomato. So isn't it like a, almost like the, the, how funny the tables have turned when your parents are asking you for something that you almost used to ask them for. So it is. And I mean, my mother will, will laugh when she hears this because she will tell you the thing she asks the most for is anything. She's like, you don't bring me anything. Like, bring me something. I've seen I mean, your cupboards. <laughs> just grab something on the way out. And often I just forget. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it can be that simple. So who was it that exactly introduced you to this, these processes of learning how to do all this stuff? Was it your mom? Was it your grandparents? Was it your dad? Well, my parents taught me how to make jam and that they, they really studied water bath preserving and that was their, their push. Now, how did they get that from their parents? Where did they pick that process? My grandfather had a cold cellar. Um, my dad was a farmer. He grew up in farms. Um, and again, with hunting, I think, you know, you see a lot of people right now talk about nose to tail and are buying half a cow or buying a full cow. Our house regularly in the fall, if we were fortunate during the hunt, would come home with 50 or 60 pounds of meat at one time, not just a simple trip from the grocery store. This is from Ux- the Uxbridge area. You would be able to hunt for these types of animals. We, we, My dad still hunts in the same land that he's hunted for 43 wow. years in Huntsville. Yeah, so we have a hunt camp just outside of Huntsville where we, our hunt camp was founded in 1969, uh, maybe 1968. Uh, and it's been continuously hunted by the same group of people, mostly fathers and sons since then. So you're a hunter or you come from hunter farmer family. I run our camp. I'm an absolute hunter. And in your bio, I see that you used to be a vegetarian at some point. Yeah. What's the connection? How did you become a vegetarian and how did you become a a non-vegetarian. So I was an avid meat eater, um, really enjoyed meat, really enjoyed different experiments and learning about myself. Um, and I was going to a French immersion in Quebec, just outside of Quebec City. And I was going to spend six weeks somewhere. And I decided that I would challenge myself to do something new. And I couldn't figure out what I was going to do to, to add a challenge to this. And I was on an airplane. I was eating a bad airplane sausage. 
And I decided at that moment, I'd never considered it, I'd never thought about it, that I was going to try to not eat pork, red meat, or game for the next six weeks. Um, in our house, when I grew up, if we killed meat in the fall, we would eat meat in the winter. If we didn't kill meat in the fall, we ate a lot less meat in the winter. And, and my house now much works much the same way. And so I decided for six weeks not to eat any of that. And um, although I ate some chicken and some fish, I actually continued that streak for eight years. Wow. Um, and it wasn't intentional. It was one day at a time. And in that time, I ate one meatball. And it was largely because I had an uncle who... I loved him dearly, but sometimes we were a little adversarial and he'd been vegetarian for six months and said, oh, I'll get sick if I eat a meatball right now. And I popped a meatball in my mouth to show him that he wouldn't. Um, and I feel like that's you in a <laughs> nutshell, though, just like disproving these kind of, I don't know, mantras that are forced upon us from outside sources to make us believe that, you know, the sterile environments for canning for one, you know, or eating meat after not eating or, you know, enough of that kind of protein for eight years. And you're just like, listen, guys, I'm the guinea pig right here. Like, let I, me show you. I'm really fascinated more by my own hypocrisy around food than others. And to me, food makes a hypocrite out of me nonstop. Before there was all these worried mothers, I mean, look at the medieval times, look at, you know, the past centuries, you know, yes, we've learned from the types of food and how to prepare them, but people weren't just dying because they were starving. A lot of these warriors or a lot of these people who went to war weren't eating full meals for weeks, and then they'd come back on small, shrunken, empty stomachs, and I'm sure that... We've learned from those experiences what's going. Our body is going. How is our body going to adjust to certain foods after not having it for X amount of time? So it, it's amazing that today in the twenty first century, in two thousand fourteen, that we are almost more afraid because of hearsay mm -hmm. and I, and like you said yourself, the hypocrisy that a lot of people kind of build up for no reason. It's very easy to see others making hypocritical moves uh, or decisions around food. It's so much tougher to see it in yourself. And, um, but it's there and it's, you know, all sorts of things. I can remember a couple of years ago, a giant chocolate manufacturer um, decided that 10% of its, its food would be fair trade. And there was a lot of excitement around that. And when you look at the fair trade movement, um, guaranteeing ethical and, and fair treatment and fair wages... To me, it was, there's this giant poster saying, hey, we're going to screw 90% of the other people, right? But it's easy to fall into those traps. And I can tell you that on a weekly basis, I find those same hypocrisies within my own decisions. Let's talk about another big hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Shopping at your local supermarket and how we have almost been chained to the idea that that's our only source of eating regularly healthy food. I mean, it's clear that you are not a supermarket. We go to the supermarket. We, I'm not anti-supermarket. I think they're necessary, and I think the changes that they're making are going to make more impact. Period than than any small independent shops. Having said that, uh, I go to a grocery store maybe once every three or four months, uh, with the exception of you know large gatherings, having a bunch of friends over to the house. I may not have enough enough things. I don't have enough things put up to, to feed beyond my family. And certainly we share things. Um, but if I'm going to cook a meal for 15 people, I don't want to go through three weeks of food. What are you buying out of the three, four times a year that you're going to the supermarket that will last you those three to four months? 
the number one thing that you asked me about uh, that occurred to me was toilet paper. (laughs) 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 And that often is the trigger that it's time to go to the grocery store. Now we do have staples. Like I make probably eight different types of hot sauce, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that there's a bottle of Sriracha in my fridge. And, And, you know, again, we're not, I'm not trying to set myself on a pedestal to say we're holier than thou. We're learning in this journey as well. Um, but a lot of that stuff, like my sriracha, would come from my local convenience store where it's a, a more community-led. Um, is that still big ag? Of course it is, right? But again, that hypocr- hypocrisy and finding those places and where I find my peace um, to make those decisions um, is kind of fascinating. What food item do you think people regularly purchase from the supermarket that you kind of kind of laugh at? You're like, well, guys, it's so much more accessible than we know. And it, you just got to put that little bit of extra work in and you can have it for X amount of time and you never have to buy it again. Um, I, I don't think I laugh because I think I've been there and I, I'm there on so many things and so many levels. But I will say that the fetish, and I've mentioned it several times, but the fetishizing of hot sauce um, is is something that is remarkable to me. And there's some amazing hot sauce purveyors in this town. Number seven, Carlos um, and Sandra and what they do around that and Rosie Earl. Um, they do some great stuff with small stuff, but a lot of the big hot sauces. Let me give you an example of where we say with hot sauce. A lot of people say, I don't want something very hot. I want something flavorful. And we end up with a product that's a mass produced product that's done with a whole lot of vinegar. And vinegar is cheaper than hot peppers. So what ends up happening is we have to put so much of this hot sauce in your chili or in your soup to add flavor that you end up drinking vinegar. And to me, you know, you can make unbelievable hot sauce really, really simply. Give us another quick tangent of an easy hot sauce that you make on the regular, almost like a quick pickle style. Sure. So my go-to hot sauce is really simple. Um, I, I use mason jars as measurements. So a mason jar, a large mason jar is a liter. Cut the tops off a bunch of hot peppers, jam them in, jam them as tight as you can. Um, so you have one liter of hot peppers. Put two tablespoons of coarse salt. And just kind of shake that around and leave it go. A day or two, uh, leave it overnight, some of the liquid will come out of the hot peppers. Um, I then top it up with water. Um, If you can use non-chlorinated water, you want to, because if the water's chlorinated, it it can stop fermenting. Um, Toronto tap water is generally non-chlorinated. Sometimes I think it is chlorinated. I I can't say that for authority, but I'm guessing based on ferments that, that something's going on there. Um, Whether it's chlorine or another purifier. But all you need to do is soak peppers and salt and water. And this is the same way you make a dill pickle. It's the same way that you make sauerkraut. It's salt and a vegetable and maybe a bit of water. And just cover that jar and push those, push the peppers underneath the water. I usually use a small jar inside the big jar and let it sit. And I let it sit for probably best part of a week. Things will go soft. Um, Strain the liquid out and put the hot peppers in a blender. Uh, Keep the liquid. So now you've got a paste of hot peppers. Add a bit of liquid, add a bit of vinegar. Typically, I'll do one-to-one ratio of them, and you've got an amazing hot sauce that you can't buy. Which peppers does that process work best with? Everyone. So I sometimes do, um, uh, sometimes I'll do ghost peppers, I'll do jalapenos, I'll do whichever. You're asking about really simple tips. Let me give you a different take on hot sauce that I think is, is really awesome. In fact, I might, I might even have some in my pocket. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, oh, I do too. I brought you something. So... Um, so He's I'm, literally I'm bringing get, a baggie. There's a, a baggie. This is looks almost like drugs here. I'm not going to lie. So what this, this is, is amazing. This is uh, we grow ghost peppers. We have 60 square feet um, of raised bed gardens in a parking spot in in the back of Queen Street. 
And so you want to preserve peppers really easily. Here's the easiest way to do them. Grab a bunch of peppers, chop them up. Add four to five times their volume in coarse salt. That's all. Let them sit. Those peppers are over a year and a half old. You talked about curing, mentioned curing earlier. Those are cured. That's just cured salt and hot peppers. And what's really cool about this is all the capsaicin, all the hotness of the ghost peppers goes in the salt. And then when you put the salt in your soup or in your dish, it dissolves. And so you can add less heat because you can add only a tiny piece of salt and spread it across an entire dish. So you can add flavor um, without adding crazy heat as opposed to diluting it with vinegar and making it all taste like vinegar. How would I use this saran wrapped hot sauce that just came out of your pocket? Right. So that's just salt. Just use it like salt. It's salt and dry, it's salt dried peppers. But we're calling this a, a hot sauce. A hot salt? It effectively is a cured salt. Okay. And what peppers was this? That was Which ghost. kind of peppers? Ghost peppers. And yeah. where, do you grow ghost peppers? Yeah, those were grown on the back, in a back alley on Queen Street. Okay, so is this an urban farm that you're involved with? No, we have 60, about 70 square feet of raised bed gardens in the back of Queen Street in a parking spot. That I, won't, you, I won't give you the address. No, <laughs> that's amazing though. So you, you heard about this space for rent that no, you could... No, it's, 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 it's... Community uh, garden? No, it's our house. It's, uh, we happen to live in a place that happened to have an extra parking spot. The parking spot is half rented to an auto shop and, and the auto shop uses it for a dumpster. And But there's a lot of room around that dumpster that's not in front of the dumpster. All of our gardens are raised off the ground. So there's no leakage from the ground. There's no seepage from the ground. Um, our gardens are probably a foot off the ground. So there's no soil touching the ground. I'm not worried about any cross contaminants from, from the, the auto shop. Um, and uh, we grow small and, and really a symbolic garden. Not enough food to substantially feed us. A lot of herbs bunch of hot peppers and, and just enough to kind of remind us where our food comes from. What grows the best in the atmosphere, in the, in the climate and the atmosphere that Toronto puts out there? Really depends on your sun. We don't have a lot of sun, but right. man, I know a lot of people doing hot peppers on apartment balconies right across the city. Hot peppers is, is something that grows remarkably easy and in a small container. Herbs very, I mean, herbs are incredibly easy, um, but uh, for sure, uh, hot peppers are a real easy thing to, to nurture and grow. So a couple dashes of salt, one dash of salt. You, you, know. could, you could take as little or as much as you want. You could take a grain and just put it in your mouth and you'd feel heat. Wow. Mm-hmm. And try it, man. Open it up. All right. All right. We're going to go for it. It's not crazy. Like it's not intentionally crazy hot. And, and maybe my palate's a bad palate here. Um, well, I like the idea and I'm unraveling this uh, saran wrap just to preserve, <laughs> preserve it. That word. <laughs> I mean, the puns that are just unbelievable in your world. Well, we, we used to joke about it being um, about my liver. Well-preserved. Yeah. <laughs> Little alcohol joke for you kids, yeah, out there. So this actually, this is great. Like if you're talking about talking about alcohol, um, great in even in a Caesar, for example, of just adding that into. Oh, a Caesar, this would be right? perfect in a Caesar. So what's on my finger right now looks just like a couple grains of salt. I mean, there's a little reddish color to it. That's obvious, obviously from the pepper itself. So that's all it is. Is all the liquid from the pepper has been pulled into the salt, and and sometimes it, there's more liquid left in the jar. You can add more salt or just go with the liquid. I'm gonna get a little bit more of a red piece on my finger here. I'm gonna put this in my mouth. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's, we use this in stir fries, we add it in sauces, we, and you can really add a delightful heat without overpowering a dish. And of course you can go much hotter if you want to as well. Wow. That's a burst of heat and flavor. You're right. It's the salt. I mean, if you're going to be adding salt to your dish anyway, and you like the spice, like you said, this is like seasoning without having to worry about 
removing any of the major flavors from it. You're adding to it. You're embracing it. I like that. That's interesting. So if you think about Tabasco and, you know, you'd have to add so much Tabasco to get to that level of heat um, that you would ultimately really change the flavor of your dish. Right. See, that's a great explanation for it because really the amount on my finger was so minuscule. It was maybe two granules of, of this cured pepper salt. And I could easily put that in a cup of soup, one or two or even three, and that you'd have enough heat and flavor to really, that's the idea of the salt in general, right? You're adding this kind of spice to enhance your flavor, and you're enhancing with heat. And I think that's a real big difference than than adding heat instead of enhancing the flavor. Yeah, and it's a paradox that I that I like to to say that if you don't like hot stuff, it's probably because you're not eating stuff that's hot enough. And, and this is an example. That's one of the hottest peppers in the world. Um, but because we've spread it across the salt, you can use a tiny bit of it. If you tried to heat a dish with jalapeno, you'd have to add so much jalapeno that the whole dish would actually be hotter than just one or two grains of that salt. And it's a tasty burn. I still feel a little bit of the nice burn on my tongue. It's pleasant. It's not overwhelming. And that's that's incredible. So how long did that take? And how did it end up in the saran wrap in your pocket? So I brought it for you, actually. I, I did bring that uh, today. That wasn't like, hey, I walk around with salt in my pocket. <laughs> um, that is... Two and a half years old. Um, it takes five minutes to make. We chop up peppers every year and I cover them in salt and I leave them. Um, I have three or four of those on the go at most times. Um, we have peach salt. We have rhubarb salt. We have a bunch of different flavored salts. For, so a peach salt I would use in a salad dressing, for example. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So and same principle, exact same principle. And so these are preserves you can make in five minutes or less. And that's one of the making jam and making jelly can take hours. Um, it can take a weekend to do tomato sauce. But man, you can preserve in minutes. Now, now, is it the length of time after you initially preserve them that it gets to this? That is kind largely of to do. There's a combination of two things to dry uh, to dry anything when you're when you're curing it with salt, and one is the amount of salt, um, relative humidity in the air. If you're in a really humid spot, then it's obviously tougher to become dry, um, and the amount of moisture is in a pepper. We don't realize how much food degrades, how quickly. Uh, 40% of the sugar in a cob of corn can actually disappear within the first four hours. Um, that's according to Hervé Thies, uh, who's a food scientist. Uh, sorry, not Hervé Thies, uh, Harold McGee, who's a food scientist in the States. Um, food loses a ton of its natural sugars and flavors in the first several hours. So the quicker that you can get those peppers, the more liquid there is to pull out of them. Um, those being from our garden are optimal, so they would take longer to dry than something that's been sitting on a shelf for several weeks when already. you're harvesting are you pulling right out of the ground and into a pickle jar half the time most of the time those probably were off the stem for less than five minutes before they were in the salt isn't that the ideal just from your explanation right there that's the i mean do enough companies even do that like does tabasco really do that i mean i highly suspect not but i mean it's let me call it a romantic ideal back to my own hypocrisy right i can't live on hot sauce and I certainly can't grow enough food to do that with. I mean, I, I dig that, that I can do that with, with my chili salt. Um, but that's not going to make me sus sustain my family over the winter. I think you're the one who's really fetishizing hot <laughs> sauce, but in the best way possible. I mean, I get that idea of, you know, Scoville units and it's got to be the hottest and it's got to be in the millions and the endorphins. But I, I mean, at that point, there's no flavor. 
Sure. And I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do with food that people aren't doing with traditional old techniques. And, that, and that's where it gets fascinating to me. Um, your juicer, there's, there's this amazing thing called a steam juicer. I don't know if you've ever heard of a steam juicer. Again, advantages and disadvantages. Disadvantages is going to kill a lot of the nutrients in the food. So a steam juicer um, takes gallons of fruit um, or other things. And you put them inside it, and it's a four-part pan. So the bottom is a small water boiler. The second pan looks like a regular pan on the outside, but has a spigot that drains liquid out, and I'll explain that in a second. But when you look inside it, it looks like, do you know what a coffee cake, a bunt can looks like? It's kind of got a pyramid in the middle of with course. a hole in the middle. So it looks like that. And then there is a colander, a strainer that goes on top of that and has the same shape and it has a little cover over the hole and then a lid. And you can fill it with things like apples or grapes and the steam comes up out of the bottom and pulls the liquid out of the fruit, which then captures in that outside barrel and then comes out the spigot. So really awesome ways to make jelly, make jam. We do some, some fruit wines with that, some cider, you know, uh, cider presses, a people think about grape presses, that type of thing. Um, but I have some cherry wine that I've done just this way without a press and it's really pure juice that comes out. So a great example of that is actually being able to pull juices out of hot peppers like that. So now you just have the pure capsaicin, um, and this is where we get into kind of the weird science of of my kitchen, where I start to play again that that pursuit of interesting uh, to see what happens. Still have lots of good things because I I can't eat everything that's interesting. Um, but some of those experiments, be, like this chili salt, was a quest for interesting. Um, but I think it's become something very good. So is every wing in your house a different preserve, preservation going on? Is there a, a, are the basements ready for a certain type of preserving and then the upstairs? I mean, the humidity changes and even in your own home, I just imagine, I mean, jokingly, I think that your whole house has hanging meats everywhere. And, We're and, in a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if there actually is a disaster, you're set for life. Absolutely. Yeah. Although, if you read the prepper community, we're actually bad because everybody knows that we've got all this stuff. Oh, so yeah, yeah, that, yeah. We'd be number one target. Your headquarters. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the reality is that we're in, a, we're in about a thousand square feet. It's mostly open concept. Mostly everything is in the kitchen. Um, I have a dog who loves meat, so there's nothing that can hang near the floor. Um, we, because of the book, have an unusual amount of stuff right now. So we have a, a large fridge. I have a wine fridge just for the ferments. Um, we have the large... Um, shelf that you talked about and we have a second shelf like that and two and a half tables right now covered um, we're un as I say unusually high right now because of your book yeah uh, I want to talk to you about mistakes that you've learned from your processes I mean I'm sure not everything has turned out perfectly and you've done the research and realized why anything that even on the most basic level that can be prevented when you're starting. Sure. I'm a giant fan of making mistakes, you know, as, as long Sounds as everybody's like safe. It. Like, um, I can tell you the worst mistake and it's the worst. It's somebody I learned preserving from. I took a course and she said, you know, everybody talks about botulism and talks about health fears. She said, really the biggest thing you have to worry about is boiling water. And, and it's not a small amount sometimes. So, you know, if we're making tomato sauce, we have these giant pots that, that are over a meter across. I mean, you're talking about gallons upon gallons of boiling water. The worst mistake I ever made was I poured a pot of boiling water uh, into a second pot and I used the second pot as leverage and I rested it against my stomach and I was pouring it towards myself. Really, just really dumb. And the water, of course, splashed over the pot and it landed on my chest and somehow it just, 
I managed to jump back and it just hit my shirt. Um, and, um, I peeled a bit of skin on my stomach, but not a lot. And that was probably the big wake up call that, holy smokes, remember this, like some mistakes aren't safe to make. Um, a lot of my mistakes around fermenting were, were done and still done when I get really lazy and forget to check it. You know, uh, fermenting, you can leave for weeks and it's fine. And so I, I, I check it every day and then I stop checking it. And then I check it five days later and there's mold on the top and it's gone. Meaning it's gone too soft, it's gone too far and I didn't think it was going that quick. Um, so a lot of stuff like that. And then some st just stupid mistakes. I, I made lemon squash, which is... Um, lemonade concentrate if you think about the frozen tubs of lemonade you had as a kid in the freezer this is this stays on your shelf and it's basically the same thing i actually forgot to put the lemon in it um <laughs> you know, made lemonade without lemons um it was just maple syrup and water um so some of those experiments didn't work out and then some experiments didn't work out when i a lot of the experiments that didn't work out i, I wasn't sure that they were going to when i first started okay that's a good point to put out there any mistakes turn out to be good mistakes yeah, I think there's lots. I think the big thing is when I try to make, when I try to do something really that's different or I don't think has been done, I do small quantities. So when the mistakes happen, that that it's a manageable amount and that we're not just creating a big pile of waste. The worst mistake I ever made, by the way, was I bought, I did, oh man, I probably did four gallons of pickles my first time and not the vinegar pickles, but the fermented pickles. And I didn't know how to ferment and I hadn't read the recipes. And what happens with fermenting is fermenting at room temperature will eventually make the food too soft, as I've said several times. To stop it from fermenting and almost, almost stop it, you put it in the fridge and it'll last almost indefinitely in the fridge. Um, but I didn't read that part when I decided to do like four gallons of pickles. And um, I had no idea where I was going to keep these. And suddenly I realized I had to keep them all in my fridge. Uh, I gave away a lot of pickles that year. Oh, great. <laughs> so it's good to be your neighbor. It, sometimes. And sometimes there's odd smells. <laughs> but I mean, that's the beauty of it. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish house. So, you know, fish stink when you're making gefilte fish for the holidays. Sure. Was like a kind of a a double-edged sword. It was kind of a bittersweet. It's like, oh my God, this is disgusting. My clothes and everything I own now smells like a filter fish. But when that plate of fish ended up on your plate at dinner time you were the happiest person doesn't matter what you smelled like the weeks before yeah and I, we've had a couple of those occurrences like i can think of i'm not allowed to make fish sauce fermented fish sauce which is really big on my list of things that i want to make um the probably the worst that we ever had it oh, two or three bad things we did five pounds of bacon jerky um four and a half days of dehydrating basically the smell of slow rendering pork fat through your house for four and a half days i have a hunting dog a hound dog that just was just going wild for it kind of sounds interesting and good like I'm, i wouldn't i would appreciate that maybe for a day or two yeah for four days it was a little much and, and my partner works out of the house so that was just it was crippling to her we also did a particularly pungent batch of onions. We did um, 10 pounds of onions uh, dehydrated and basically making onion powder. Um, most of that will reduce by 95%. So oh, wow. Half a pound of onion powder is what you're going to get out of 10 pounds of onions. It's, it's remarkable. Um, put that in volume, five pounds of beets will become half a cup of beet powder. So it's remarkably concentrated. We smelt like onions for five or six days to the point that Somebody at work had an allergy to onions and couldn't enter my office. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, she was crying. It was it was uh, just from the onion reaction. It, it was noticeable. And I'm complaining about a little bit of a gefilte fish stink. Yeah. You're literally making people not able to come into the work. That's impressive. That's but impressive. It's, it's very impressive. I But I need to emphasize, when I talk about smell and smelly, I don't want to scare people away. We have probably had three cases of smelly stuff in our house like this in nine years of pretty hardcore fermenting. And you're and, an extreme preserver. Yeah. And that's when we're pushing it as well. I don't know... I don't know that a lot of people would would jump in and, and say, "Hey, I got to dehydrate ten pounds of onions." Um, that was just something that that we decided to jump into. That brings me to another point, another question that I wanted to talk to you about about the value of canning, because we obviously live in the supermarket age right now, where if I wanted to go buy a jar of pickles, it's probably going to cost me less to go to the supermarket and purchase it than my time it takes to pickle and preserve to the actual products and materials it takes to pickle those pickles instead of going to the supermarket. Sure. So I guess there's two or three ways to look at that. Sometimes that's true. Um, sometimes it's not. Uh, I think people would be shocked to know the cost of tomato sauce when you can it yourself. You know, you look at stores that sell homemade tomato sauce and, and they're selling it for 8 or $9 because it's tough to do on scale. We buy 45 pounds of tomatoes um, for $18 um, in the fall. Uh, and we'll buy eight of those. So we basically do a liter of tomato sauce for a dollar. Um, peppers, we buy 40 pounds of peppers for $18. Um, that, that's red peppers. And think about what you pay per pound for red pepper right now. Some, sometimes you're paying 2 or $3 for a red pepper. I'm paying $18 for 40 pounds of them. Um, that we preserve and use through the winter. Um, I had a red pepper, a red pepper sauce on pasta on Friday night that was just done from that. It probably cost me a dollar fifty of of peppers, and this time of year it would cost me ten. Um, so sometimes we do it because it is cheaper when you buy in quantity, and and it's not going to a farmer's market and buying a couple, buying it by the basket. It's buying it by a full bushel, and and often having different places to buy it, or talking to the farmers and buying large quantities at once. The other way to do it, to, to know, is that sometimes I make jars that are much more expensive than in the store because if they ever tried to make it in the store, they could never sell it. I have a blueberry jam that's done with wild blueberries and maple syrup, and it's probably $8 of ingredients in a cup and a half. Um, so it would retail for 30 or $40. So while you can buy $5 blueberry jam, um, and if you look at the ingredients, the second ingredient will almost always be grape juice, uh, even on the organic stuff, because juice is cheaper than fruit. So most of, of the, many of the preserves that you see in a store, not the small, small um, people who are amazing in this city that are doing preserves, um, but when you run into commercial product, it's often cut with stuff like that. So you're not actually buying what I'm making. Let's talk about these mom and pop shops yeah. that are opening up and basically exposing a lot of younger generations to the idea of pickling. And I think there's two sides of these places. It encourages you to want to do these things at home only because it, it they simplify it in a lot of ways. They show you that, you know, a lot of these products are local and this is a process, this is how we do it. Even so, they know most people are not going to go home and do it. So that's why they exist as a store. But tell us about your experience and sure so there's really two styles happening in toronto that that i think have an important distinction and both have merit one is the bricks and mortar store stasis preserves in roncesvalles thomas and lavers in kensington i mean 
both sets of young people who are doing really wicked stuff that's really fun. Stasis does a, a ghost pepper Ontario hot sauce that that there's nothing commercially available like it. And I think that's really, really valid. The guys at Thomas and Lavers are doing things like um, the homemade um, root beer and ginger beer and stuff like that, that they're really taking into a contemporary level and combining with bars and really making it like, this is not about your grandmother's movement. We're not trying to get back to the prairie here. We're trying to make very urban food. Um, and I think it, they're making it relevant, which is really cool. And then there's a whole other group of, of people who are selling through farmer's markets that I think are just as important. So you run into, you know, Pyramid Ferments, Alex and Jenna from Prince Edward County, and they grow 95% of what they ferment, they grow themselves. And um, that type of stuff that you see. And I think all of that is really important and, and really can let you try things without committing to making big batches. But it's very tough to sustain yourself if you're buying all of your product commercially. Because um, that's where you will run into the sticker shock and say, holy smokes, this is way more expensive than the grocery store. To me, this isn't, you can't, if you're going to switch to eating through more preserves and eating more local and eating more ethically, if I use that murky word, you've got to eat differently than you did before. Because if you try to replicate everything you did before, it, it if you look dollar per dollar, it's, it's much more expensive. So what are these pickling places doing for the restaurant industry and how are these restaurants that you're seeing the trends of pickling being used in their cuisine well, i think there's two or three folds i think like toronto's been an amazing place uh you know jamie kennedy probably being at the forefront of that and eight or nine years well maybe not eight nine years ago maybe six or seven years ago terroir um which is toronto's um number one hospitality event arlene stein and and a ton of people run this amazing hospitality one day convention they bring in chefs from all around the world they brought in uh, david chang from momofuku uh, renee Zeppi from noma um and uh, uh, daniel balud was there this year um amazing chefs from all over and it's been really fascinating. We, we take a year, a, a day every year, and we go to it. And seeing how preserving is is really shaping a lot of kitchens. You know, Parts and Labor had a rooftop garden. I don't know if they still do, but I know that they did four or five years ago. And, and Maddie was doing black radish relish. And a lot of people were doing really experimental stuff. So a lot of the restaurants are making their own things. Um, but we're definitely starting to see restaurants who are working with some of these some of the kitchens who... You know, Stasis started at farmer's markets and became their own store and can now start to provide stuff on a much larger scale. And you're starting to see it in restaurants and making a really neat connection of that whole, um, of the whole movement. I, 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 movement is a tough word for me because it makes it sound like it's a big parade. This is just life and one step at a time. I, I don't think that it's a big giant movement. So with seasonal growing and seasonal harvesting, do you find that pickling and preserving in general gives us a taste of a season that we may have been out of for like six months? Oh man, completely. So I call it a time machine. It, and when you open it, <laughs> like you open a jar and it's like, you're right back at that day. And if you were at that day making it with friends and family, I mean, you are transported there in that moment. And, you know, we did tomato sauce that. with eight friends this summer on a patio. And, and now whenever any of us open a jar, we all think of all the other jars that have gone across the city and made their migrations and really, really neat. But really, the, the that's probably what made the difference was asparagus, believe it or not, was asparagus was the first ingredient that I intentionally stopped buying during the winter. Um, and it was really easy to quit. Like asparagus was really easy to quit. And I never thought I'd see the day that I would stop buying tomatoes in the winter because I, I, I would eat five, six, seven tomatoes in a week. That would just be a regular 
everyday week. Um, I'm a tomato fiend. And I knew that an August tomato was better than a January tomato, but I could never think that I would never buy a tomato in the winter. Um, yet that's exactly what happened. And it started with asparagus. And and so we have asparagus pickles in the winter. We have a um, pressure canned asparagus soup. I have some frozen asparagus. It will taste as good, um, if not modified, like a pickled asparagus obviously tastes like a pickle. Um, but it... Man, if there's something special when spring comes up and the first asparagus comes up and we will eat, two of us will eat four or five pounds of asparagus in a week, every week until it's out. Is there um, a faux pas when it comes to cooking with preserved foods instead of leaving them in their natural state? No, man, like I'm a big fan. What I, where I, in fact, part of our book, we have 150 preserving recipes and 50 will be um, full plated meals using the preserves as ingredients. Okay. And I think we really switched. When I started making preserves, I thought of them as condiments. Hey, I'm going to make jam. Hey, I'm going to make jelly. Maybe I'll make ketchup, right? Maybe we'll make relish. And you really think about it in this tunnel vision of, hey, I'm going to make something that goes on top of something. We've really kind of transformed that in our in our view of the world of preserving that I now make ingredients. So that whole thing switches is that we now have this pantry that drives our cooking through the year and we use it in more ways that, than you can imagine. The one faux pas that I think people miss with, with uh, especially with pickles, is they throw the brine out. And even vinegar pickles is amazing. Like, you know how people poach eggs, for example, and they put a bit, bit of vinegar in the water. Why not use your pickle brine? Right. You know, if you're making rice, put a bit of vinegar, put a bit of your brine right. in it. It's so much more flavorful than just white vinegar from a container. So if you're going to cook with vinegar, that then use that in things. And it's about using everything. Sure, absolutely. And, and everything that, that it's not a, it's not a sacrifice. It's more flavored vinegar than your vinegar that's sitting in the bottle. It's amazing how much we throw away that can be used in a kitchen. I save all my fats. I save everything. Awesome. Yeah, that's the but, but I mean even if you don't think you're going to use it, you will definitely use it. And it's that time where you're like, "Oh, I wish I kept that bacon fat. I'm cooking Brussels sprouts right now. I don't want to I don't have any bacon." Right. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. That's why I decided <laughs> to start cooking because for whatever reason. But you know, like that's what I think Especially a lot of the younger generation, we're just so easy to pour stuff out. We're just ready to get it rid of it and get me something new and, and start fresh. We have a million people starving in Canada. We David Suzuki Foundation estimates that uh, Canadians throw out, North Americans throw out 33% of our food. Um, and another 33% is wasted in the fields because um, most grocery stores won't buy ugly vegetables. And they're considered too ugly to retail. Um, one of the great things about a farmer's market, you can buy ugly vegetables. And to give you an idea, you can buy a, a giant bag of carrots. And by a giant bag, I mean it's larger than the largest gro uh, garbage bag you have in your house. And I haven't seen your garbage bag. So if you picture the big black garbage bags that you throw out on the curb, you can buy a bag of seconds carrots that often are used for horses or deer for that matter. Um, that that typically would sell at a farmer's stand for $5 because they don't have a market for it. Um, and that's the tragedy of ugly vegetables. So we're throwing out 60% of our food in North America. Um, meanwhile, we've got farmers who could instantly make more money by, by if, if people would buy it. Um, and we got a million people starving. What are some of your favorite markets, your farmer's markets in Toronto and in Ontario? Um, the Leslieville farmer's market has got a space in my heart and, and I'm from the East end, but I'm not 
you know, East End till death. Although, uh, yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to a West End till death kind of guy. So it's okay. I'm gonna, we're going to go out to dinner in the East End. We'll, we'll, we'll go by some of your favorite watering holes. Well, I'll give a shout out to Witchwood too, because Witchwood's a great place and enjoy it. But there's something about the Leslieville market that if you would, you know, I, I think about an architect drawing these giant condo buildings and renderings and having this little pretend farmer's market at the base of it with the little tiny stick up people that would be the Leslieville market. Um, the combination of families, community, um, it's tough to go there now. The best thing about the farmer's market to me, a good farmer's market, regardless of where it is, is this. When people go to groceries, it's an errand and it's isolation and it separates you from the world. And we put our headsets on and we really go numb and we try to get out of there as quick as possible. We go to a farmer's market now knowing that it's probably going to take us two hours. Our groceries are done in the last 10 minutes because it's much smaller and our selection is there, but through running into people over time and building community, um, farmer's markets are about people as much as they are about food. And how does that tie into your book that you're currently writing? Because this is obviously a book that is encouraging families and friends to get together to try these recipes out. So, I mean, funny, like we have uh, 300 recipe testers around the world that have volunteered for us. And many of them have come through the market who we didn't meet till after they volunteered. Um, which is How do you get on this list? <laughs> oh, that one's done because now it's all, now I'm, I'm done with all the, not much growing this time of year for us. So, um, so we, yeah, so we've met a lot of people through there. I think more than anything, the market is a place that's really encouraging of our project and, and we hope we are in, in reverse as well. And, um. But I still, we still go down to the brickworks on the weekend and see farmers that we know and get inspired about their stories and what they're doing. And um, it, it's, it's, this is a team sport. It's a connection that most consumers lack. Mm-hmm. And with a little bit of appreciation that you get from entering these markets, talking to these farmers, your food tastes that much better. And you know where it's coming from, why it's there at that time of year, and why you're enjoying it so much more than an avocado that you got in the middle of winter from God knows where. Oh man, like we can, you know, Dana will have lunch and she'll text me and she's like, you know, and again, this can kind of, kind of sound elitist and it it's not because we're talking about friends. We're not talking about, you know, people that we're putting up on pedestals. And she said, oh, I had this great sandwich with, with Henry and Ruth on it. And I know what that means. It's Henry from Humble Bread. It's his bread and, and Ruth is Ruth Class and it's her cheese. That's adorable. <laughs> right? That is the, the funniest thing I've heard all day. Yeah. So if, if it's a Henry and Ruth sandwich, I know what it is and I know who it came from. And that's, and I think the really thing that is neat about global, but but larger than global, or, or local, but but global. I was talking to Ruth Classen, who's Montforte cheese, who's just a cheese hero and really a hero of local food in this province. And I had had a business trip to Chicago, and I had eaten a a cheese that I thought was really amazing, and it was a white cheddar. and And she said, "Oh, it was Prairie Girl." And I said, "How?" this was a small cheese maker outside of Chicago. And she said, well, they're a Mennonite community and I'm from a Mennonite community and I've got, you know, we're surrounded by them. I, I'm actually using the same recipe and we share recipes back and forth and are connected. And I don't understand that whole connection and how that works, but it is a really small community um, that's much bigger than boundaries, um, like a city limit or a country limit would, would really have you believe. What is a recipe in your book that really takes advantage of the local markets? Uh, like there's 194 of them. There's six that don't. 
Um, and the six that don't, so I, I'm answering your question the other way. I like it. <laughs> um, the six that don't, again, I don't want to put us on a pedestal saying we're only local, and our book is not only for Torontonians. Um, so our six um, non-local uh, are all citrus-based. So really taking a look at marmalade and looking at curing lemons and that type of thing, that lemons are... I know chefs that, that have gone the full gamut and don't cook with olive oil and don't cook with lemons. Um, I would struggle with, without that. I, I think lemons are pretty amazing things and they're local for somebody else. Before we finish up here, tell us about one recipe you're currently working on that's really making you excited. Hooch. <laughs> no hesitation. Yeah, no, I'm doing a lot of oddball experimentations around booze, um, which I'm really excited about. And some of it is... Um, some of it's awful um, and some of it's fantastic. And so trying different ratios of apple, Ontario apple cider with maple syrup to make uh, a still cider, uh, which I'm kind of pumped about. Um, some uh, cherry liqueur that I've got going on right now that, that's, that's kind of pretty neat. Um, How do you get on that list for testing? And is testing, <laughs> does testing become a little bit of a party without you even trying sometimes? I got to admit... I, you know, we booze is optional in all of our recipes, but there's a lot of booze in the book. Uh, whether that's making your own booze or whether that's a- adding booze to it, I think that that alcohol and I'm not trying to fetishize alcohol again, but is a great un- unused ingredient or underused ingredient in cooking. Um, you know, we often think of wine or we think of sherry, um, and guys like John Snopley, who you've had previously, have, have pushed me previously to say, think acid, think acid, and you can get a lot of acid and a lot of a lot of flavors from turning towards that that world that I think is um, is pretty neat to incorporate in your cooking. So let's plug your book once more. Sure. Some, do you have an idea of release date in 2015? Spring 2016. It's oh, a, wow. It's a three-year project. Um, we're at 18 months now. Uh, manuscript is due uh, in January, where we'll be 100,000 words is the goal for the manuscript. It's going to publish probably about 75 or 85,000 words. And plug your website again. Wellpreserved.ca, and the name of the cookbook is, will be called Batch. I want to thank Joel McCharles from being my guest today on Speaking Duck. Joel, this has been an excitable podcast. We're going to have to have you on again. Let's go grab some food at John's restaurant. Awesome. And we'll call it a day. Thanks. That was worth it, man. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, sir. 